This is why we saw these protests. The frustrations over the inability to respond to those demands led to the protests of October 2019. And it's what a new generation of political leaders in Chile are trying to respond to. And it's the hope behind many people who push for the Constitutional Convention that the entire economic and political model of the country could change to meet those new demands. Despite previously being considered one of Latin America's beacons of democracy, Chile has been plunged into a series of social upheavals since October of 2019. Protesters flooding the streets of Santiago demanded a more inclusive and progressive social contract, which eventually led to the creation of the Constitutional Convention. However, in the run-up to the presidential elections, more protests, the persistent oppression of the Mapuches, and the prevalence of the neoliberal economic model continue to cast plenty of doubts as to the convention's power to change Chile's reality. To help answer these questions and more, join us in this episode of The Global Review. The Global Review Today, we are joined by William Skews Cox, international human rights lawyer and Latin America political analyst who has been living in Chile for a number of years. Well, thanks for joining us today. Hi, Fernanda. Thanks for having me. So first of all, as I mentioned, Chile has seen some of the most seismic social upheavals in its recent democratic history. So for our listeners who aren't as well-versed in Chilean politics and what's currently going on in the country, can you walk us through why Chileans demanded a new constitution in the first place? So the Chilean constitutional process has its roots in the October 2019 protests. But what's interesting is those protests did not begin with an explicit demand for a new constitution. They were in response to a slight increase, uh, just a number of cents, in the price of the metro in Santiago. And this led to a number of protests among high school students, actually, who initiated a campaign of mass evasions where they basically jumped the, the, the stalls and, and got onto the metro for free. And this resulted in a lot of strong public declarations from the Piñera government against these protests and also an attempt on the part of the Piñera government to minimize the significance of the increase in the metro fare. Now, these increases in the metro fare, this is something that had gone on in Chile a number of times. Bachelet, she increased the metro fare. But under Piñera, you had his ministers committing a bunch of unforced communication errors, such as telling people that if they were upset about how expensive the metro is, well, they should just get up earlier in the morning so that they can get the early bird fare. And this set off sort of a chain reaction in society where people realized that the ministers and the president were totally out of touch with the lives of the average Chilean person and the sort of economic pressures that they faced. And so what began as protests focused on public transportation fares morphed into a criticism of the health system, the pension system, the education system, low salaries, and really the entire economic model that Chile has followed over the, over the course of the last 30 years. These protests got to such a, they, they grew to such an extent that they challenged the ability of the government to enforce the state of law in Santiago. 
And in one day, there were more than 1 million people in the streets of Santiago, which is a city of 7 million people. So one in seven people in the capital attended this protest. And at this point, the government realized that it needed to do something. So they invited a bunch of members of Congress and politicians across the political spectrum, and they reached an agreement to begin this constitutional process. All right. And I also wanted to follow up on the point you mentioned about some foundational issues with the healthcare system, the education system, the economic models. How is that in some ways connected to Chile's past and, and Pinochet? Because some you know, analysts have been also pointing to how the constitution itself and the economic model itself is a result of the Pinochet regime. So how is what's going on in Chile today connected to Chile's past? Sure. Yeah. The economic model that, that Chile follows, which is generally understood to be a neoliberal economic model, has its roots in the reforms undertaken by, by Pinochet under the inspiration of the Chicago School of Economics and Milton Friedman. An entire generation of Chilean economists studied at the University of Chicago, came back to Chile and were given high-level positions in the Pinochet dictatorship to carry out a wide variety of radically pro-market economic reforms. And these, these were the economic policies that the democratic governments inherited in the 1990s after the transition to democracy. The governments of the Concertación, which ruled Chile in the 1990s and early 2000s, these were center-left governments, They kept the core of the economic model intact, but they softened it around the edges. And during this period, Chile experienced really high economic growth and the economy grew significantly and with it, the tax base. And so these center-left governments were able to take the growing tax base and spend it on a number of social programs that brought down poverty and extreme poverty to the lowest in the region. The... The issue following that, though, has been how does Chile transition from a low to mid-income economy to a higher-income economy? And when people escape from extreme poverty and poverty and enter the middle class, their demands change. Now it's not so much about running water, electricity, and food. It's about health, education, and retirement. And the political class in Chile has not been able to respond to these demands. And this is why we saw these protests. The frustrations over the inability to respond to those demands led to the protests of October 2019. And it's what a new generation of political leaders in Chile are trying to respond to. And it's the hope behind many people who push for the Constitutional Convention that the entire economic and political model of the country could change to meet those new demands. The next thing that I want to focus on is the actual design of the Constitutional Convention, which in a lot of ways is quite innovative. So it has, number one, practically perfect gender parity across its 155 seats. It has quotas for indigenous representation, and it also requires a two-thirds majority to pass any part of the Constitution. Can we equally expect the Constitution to lead to an equally innovative outcome But more precisely, are we going to see an actual radical change away from the current economic model in, in Chile? 
So the current law requires gender parity in the constitutional convention. And this is unprecedented in the history of Chile. And it makes Chile stand out around the world to have a constitution written by a group of 50% women and 50% men. So one thing that the constitutional convention will be debating for sure is whether to enforce a similar quota on the new Congress under the constitutional convention. Current law in Chile requires gender parity in, in the congressional candidate list, but not in the eventual election of members of Congress. So this could be something that would be adopted as a constitutional provision. And I think there's a, a pretty good chance that it, it will end up being in the, in the constitution, maybe if not at 50%, then at 40%. The new constitutional convention also has reserved seats for indigenous groups, which is similarly unprecedented in the history of Chile. And the question is, again, whether that will be applied to the Congress under a new constitution. I'm a little more skeptical here. The Chilean debate around indigenous representation has been a little bit more critical in the last elections for the Constitutional Convention, there were some indigenous representatives who were elected with really low vote totals and vote totals that were nowhere near what a popularly elected member of the Constitutional Convention was. And those low vote totals are because the voting in each of those groups was restricted to people who were members of those indigenous nations. And some of these indigenous nations in Chile are quite small. And even members of those nations might not want to participate in the elections because they see participation in these mechanisms of representation in the Chilean state as a form of legitimization. And the more radical elements don't want collaboration or recognition from the state. They want their own separate state. And on the other side of it, there's a stronger democratic argument that their, their quotas in a future Congress go against the principle of one man, one vote. So you might see a fewer number of seats for indigenous representatives in the constitutional convention. There are 17 of them. Maybe there will be a compromise to decrease the number of seats. And I think there will be some reform on how to decide who, who actually gets to vote in those elections for the indigenous representatives. I want to actually carry on with the question of indigenous groups, especially with the Mapuche, because it's been a very controversial issue. Uh, I remember reading uh, res uh, recently that the president of the convention, she mentioned that Chile in itself is a colonial state because of the way that Mapuche lands were appropriated. What I wanted to focus on is, does the constitutional convention actually have a significant way of resolving this historic question, or is it just going to be trying to put a band-aid on a, a deeper wound? The resolution of the historic question of the Mapuches is something that has plagued the Chilean state throughout its history. And history here is incredibly important to understand the present conflict. The Mapuche people, unlike the vast majority of other pre-Columbian peoples, was never successfully conquered by Spain. The Mapuches even earned official recognition and sent ambassadors to courts in Europe. It was only after 
the independence of Chile from Spain that the Mapuche people were finally conquered by the Chilean state. In the 19th century, there was conflict in the Araucanía region, which resulted in the so-called pacification of the region by the Chilean military. And the Mapuche people are known throughout the Americas for having an incredibly proud warrior culture. And this has allowed them to sustain resistance up to the present day. But the current conflict in the Araucanía and the Bio Bio regions is not strictly a conflict between Mapuches and the Chilean state. The Araucanía is actually the most conservative region in Chile and consistently elects right-wing candidates. It's also the, the region in the, in the country that where Pinochet received the most amount of votes in the 1988 referendum. So not all Mapuches support the armed struggle against the Chilean state and the community itself is very divided over the issue. The problems of the Aurancania and the ancestral Mapuche territories are very complex and deeply entrenched. It's the poorest region in Chile and it suffers the most from, from violence and economic sabotage. The, the issues of violence and economic poverty are linked in the sense that the deterioration in the rule of law in the region has resulted in the lack of investment and hence for economic growth. So if there's one region in Chile that, that hurts the most, it's the, the Aurancania. Personally, I'm skeptical of the ability of the Constitutional Convention to solve the Mapuche question. There are certainly some actions it could take that would help though, allowing for educational projects that preserve Mapuche cultural and linguistic heritage would be a good place to start. Uh, the convention also serves as a reset on the troubled relationship between the Chilean state and the Mapuche people, which is something that the remarks of Loncon that you mentioned reflect. So the fact that the constitutional convention is led by a Mapuche woman represents a new way of doing business and it means that whatever constitution rules in Chile and therefore in the, in the region of the Mapuche people is being written with them instead of being forced upon them through conquest. But on the other hand, this collaboration between some Mapuche political leaders and the Chilean state is troubling to the more radical Mapuche separatist groups who seek a fully independent Mapuche state based on its historical territories and are opposed on those same grounds to the whole idea of the constitutional convention. Yeah, and I can imagine that the recently announced state of emergency is not helping pacify all of those, all of those sentiments. I think it's important for the world to know that the Aurancania and Bio Bio regions in Chile are experiencing an escalating cycle of violence and the people of the region are suffering a lot. And I would hope that more people pay attention to the Mapuche conflict and push for peaceful resolution before this escalates to something much worse. Now I want to quickly return to the ability of the constitution to bring about substantive change in Chile's reality. Because it's one thing to change the rules of the game and legislation, but a very different one to bring about the fact of progress. And for this, I want to focus on Chile's hyper-presidentialism. This has been a critique of the Chilean model in other governments in Latin America, 
with some analysts even claiming the phenomenon is endemic to the continent. So are we potentially seeing a transition away from hyper-presidentialism, or is this just wishful thinking? The hyper-presidential system in Chile is certainly one of the issues up for debate in the Constitutional Convention, but I have doubts that it will actually change. One reason is that no country in the region has a European-style parliamentary system. And another reason is that in the history of Chile, there have always been strong executives throughout its history with figures like O'Higgins, Ibanez, and Pinochet. So a, a more parliamentary style political system is fairly foreign to Chilean cultural, uh, political culture. Moreover, there's support for presidentialism actually on both sides of the political spectrum. On the Chilean right, there's this idea that the Chilean people need a strong figure to keep people in line. But on the left too, the Communist Party has also supported a strong role for the president. And this makes sense because if you wish to transform society, it's much easier to do so through the executive rather than through drawn out debate and coalition making in the parliament or Congress. So in terms of actually shifting towards a European parliamentary system with prime ministers, I don't don't see that happening. There may be minor reforms to take some powers away from the president, but even that, I think the hyper-presidential system is so entrenched in Chile that that won't face any significant changes. One thing that I think it's important for people to understand about the constitutional process in general, and not just with the question of the role of the president, is that there are only some things that the Constitutional Convention can accomplish. As I I mentioned before, the whole process for writing this new constitution arose out of the October 2019 protests, which were focused on many material concerns of the Chilean people, social welfare rights like health, education, and pension, low salaries, the, the price of the metro. And it is a little curious that the final result of that is the drafting of a new constitution because a constitution cannot solve the material problems of a country, at least in the short term. With the adoption of a new constitution, people's pensions at the end of the month won't be any higher, their boss won't give them a raise, and they're not going to instantly drop the price of the metro. But this isn't to say that a new constitution is useless. It is It is incredibly useful, but it's more in the long term. What a new constitution could do for Chile is open up the range of possibilities for a political project. The current constitution that Chile has, and this is something that I think many people overlook, is fairly democratic. But that's not because this is a constitution that Pinochet gave the country. This is not the same constitution that the country had in 1980 after the approval of Pinochet's constitution in a national referendum. This is the constitution that was changed multiple times throughout the 90s and into the the 2000s and into the the last Bachelet government. So a lot of its most anti-democratic provisions, such as senators for life, guaranteed representation in the Congress for high-ranking military officials, those were all removed. And the, the democratic system, the electoral system, is fairly democratic today. So 
what could change with this new constitution though is our i'd say two or three main things one is you can debate around the edges of the kind of democracy you want do you want one single house one single assembly or do you want a split house and senate if you want to how do you want to do the that sort of representation differently that can change do you want a uh, one supreme court or as the country currently has a supreme court and a constitutional tribunal do you want the courts to have the ability to review legislation and declare it unconstitutional or do you want the parliament to have supremacy so these are the debates about the democratic system but these aren't major uh, democratic reforms that would completely transform the political or electoral system but on the economic side there is a principle baked into the current constitution which is a principle of subsidiarity which says that the state cannot operate in an area of the economy where market actors are already participating so this means that the state should only step in when the market isn't providing a solution so this really does restrict the role of the state this would be i think almost guaranteed to be removed in the new constitution and what this means is that the state then can take on a much larger role in the economic development of a country and have more of a role in deciding the future of the country than it currently does where economic power ends up deciding public policy and not the other way around and third the most significant difference with the new constitution is symbolic Chile has never had a popularly written constitution with a number of the constitutions throughout its history and not just with the one that Pinochet gave to the country. They all came about following some sort of dictatorship or coup d'etat or military rule and the constitution was imposed on the rest of the country. The country has never had popular assemblies where the people themselves actually wrote the constitution. So that would be historic and unprecedented and would give a level of legitimacy to the political system that it's never had before. And the other the other part of it is that Chile has been going through a process over the past 30 years of ridding itself of the legacy of the Pinochet dictatorship. And this the fact that the base of the current constitution came from Pinochet even if it's been reformed almost to an unrecognizable degree everyone still knows that the foundation of the document came from Pinochet and it would represent a major break in the history of the country for them to have a new constitution that does not have its origins in the dictatorship so these these won't solve the material problems that the Chilean people have and that have gotten worse now following the social crisis and particularly with the covid-19 pandemic but going forward in the longer term it will allow the sorts of solutions that might have been blocked by these principles of subsidiarity or maybe some narrow interpretations of the previous constitution which would then be eliminated by a new one and so i think the changes that people would see would be in the medium to long term but i anticipate there will be some frustration among people when they realize that if the new constitution is improved there's not some immediate change in their day-to-day -day life So to follow up on that and you know you mentioning that it's quite curious that the convention was a result of grievances over 
materialistic matters. Could we not say that perhaps there is a bit too much pressure on the convention to change the current reality in Chile? I think you're absolutely correct that that is that's one of the dangers with the constitutional process right now that there have the entire hopes of a country have been placed on it. And it's, I think people are asking too much of it. And I think they need to be prepared for what it really means. And I think the blame for this lies a bit with the proponents of the constitution, the new constitution. And I think there's a lot of communication with the public that needs to be done to set adequate expectations and to get the public on board for what's really happening. And I also think there may have been sort of a shrewd political move on President Piñera's part, which was when he faced these huge protests and the, the collapse of social order, he had to you know, call the military into the streets. There were tanks in the streets for the first time since the dictatorship. And he knew he needed to give the people something, but Piñera himself is a billionaire and he represents the moneyed interests in Chile. And his political purpose is to prevent the loss of those economic and political privileges by that sector of society. And I think he may have realized that, hey, I can give people this constitutional process. We don't lose anything immediately. It might even end up failing in the long term. So I'll give them this. This will hopefully calm them down. And if you look at the, the size of the protest before and after the agreement for the new constitution, it did succeed in lowering the intensity of the protest. They did not go completely away. They still have not gone completely away, but it's, it's a very, it's a minor remnant that's left nowadays. And the constitutional process as it's gone so far has not been, let's call it less than ideal. There have been a number of controversies already. There were some candidates who won election based on false stories of who they really were. There was a member of the convention who said he was suffering from cancer and he couldn't afford his treatment. And that's why he was a candidate. It turned out he never had cancer. It was a lie. So he had to resign. And this affected the public perception of the, the convention and its approval rating has, has suffered. It still has fairly good support, but if this continues, there's a chance that the, the new constitution would not be approved in the final referendum that will happen next year if the convention follows its plan. So the convention right now has just started to reach the substantive portions of the constitution. So it took three months to decide its own internal rules and regulations. And now they are beginning the debates on the real substance. And so this could be a time for the convention to regain public support. And I think what we're going to see as the main focus of the debate is an emphasis on social rights and the creation of a social welfare state going forward. So the current constitution in Chile includes no economic rights. It does not guarantee to anyone the right to public education or health or pension. It uh, allows for the privatization of a large number of natural resources. Water is a privatized resource in Chile. So these will change. There are the votes there. It's what people want. The new constitution, it's almost a certainty, will include all, all of these social rights and rights of nature.
But just because there's a piece of paper that says everyone deserves health, education, and pension doesn't mean that everyone is going to get one. And the real, the real work will be for the new Congress under the new constitution to raise enough taxes and to grow the economy enough in order to provide that to the people. So to emphasize a point, the direction of the development of Chile can change under the new constitution. The possibilities for economic reforms and social reforms will increase, but there are no guarantees. And it will really just mean the beginning of a whole new period requiring a whole new round of mobilization to fully realize the social rights that the Chilean people do want. So now that we're talking about obstacles and prospects for change, I also want to draw attention to the upcoming November election where Chile will elect a new president. So currently what we're seeing is that we have Gabriel Boric from Aprobo Dignidad and Antonio Cas from the Partido Republicano leading the polls with a very slight advantage benefiting Cass, who is a right-wing candidate who has recently made headlines because of statements against immigration into Chile. What I want to ask exactly is how would we see the outcome of the presidential election affecting the outcome of the convention? So more particularly, I want to focus on Cass. So if he does win, does he have a way and a will to undermine that convention? I can guarantee you that there's a will. Absolutely. He has opposed the constitutional process from the beginning. He has been a historic supporter of at least the legacy of the Pinochet dictatorship, if not the actual dictatorship itself. He has a number of controversial statements that he's made about gays in Chile. He opposes gay marriage. He in response to the lighting up of the Chilean presidential palace in the flags, in the, in the colors of the gay flag, remarked that Chile lived under a gay dictatorship. So he's definitely a right-wing candidate, one of the most right-wing candidates that Chile has had in a long time. He's much to the right of President Piñera. Piñera actually just this year introduced a bill that would legalize gay marriage in the country. And for Cast and people like him on his side of the political spectrum, this is a complete betrayal of the right wing. So to understand Cast, he's part of the vein of hard right populist figures like Trump and Bolsonaro that have had electoral success in recent years. But his success for up to now has come as a surprise to most people in Chile. But I think this is exactly a response to the social protests of 2019 and the Constitutional Convention. The positive side of the October 2019 protests is this constitutional process. But the dark side of it is a lot of violence. Crime has gone up in the country. The police have been heavily criticized and they have retreated in some parts of the country. There's a, there's a large amount of violence in the, in the south of the country, in the, in the ancestral Mapuche territories. And, the, and there's also growing illegal immigration on the northern border, mostly refugees from economic refugees from neighboring countries or political refugees from Venezuela. So the conditions in Chile are there for these sorts of candidates to gain support. 
And while the, the you could say the radical right is in, is increasing in its support, there's a similar dynamic happening on the left where Boric is now in second place. The candidate of the parties of the Consultación and the parties that were behind the Bachelet government are trailing in third place. So you're seeing the hard left and the hard right in all likelihood advancing to a runoff in December. And both of these things would be unprecedented in Chile. Chile has been a country that for at least the last 30 years, since the end of the, the, the Pinochet dictatorship, has been ruled by either center left or center right governments. So to get to your specific question, if Cast is elected, he is going to do what he can to constrain the constitutional convention. And there are some upcoming points of contention that the next president will have to deal with. As I mentioned before, this convention took three months to decide upon its internal rules and regulations, and it's only just now debating the substance of the constitution. The convention has nine months with a one-time three-month extension to write the constitution. So it's already been three months. They have six months less on the original mandate, and they can get the three-month extension, no questions asked, basically. So they get another nine months. But will they actually finish the constitution in the next nine months? There are already members of the convention who are asking for two years. And most people who are looking at it based on how long it took them to, to do their internal rules and regulations, that they're not going to be able to finish the constitution in nine months. If this convention then asks for an extension, it will have to go to Congress and get three-fifths support. And in that confrontation, the next president of Chile could come out and say, no, we're not going to extend your mandate. And in that case, what would the convention do? Would they decide to put the incomplete or not totally well thought out constitution up for a vote before the people? That's, that, that wouldn't be a good situation. Or would they say, okay, well, actually, we're the sovereign voice of the people because we're the constitutional convention. Now we're going to not be constrained by the prior constitution that we were all elected to replace, and we're going to continue extra, extra institutionally and extra constitutionally. And in that case, the president could do a number of things. The, pre, the, the convention is dependent in terms of its budget and technical support upon the collaboration of the executive. So the executive could say, okay, well, we're not, we're not gonna pay your bills anymore, or we're not gonna help, you know, get a budget for the convention through the Congress. So if CAST is elected, the constitutional convention is gonna have a tough road ahead of it. But on the other hand, if Bordic is elected, you would see, I think, uh, unprecedented levels of collaboration between members of the convention and Bordic and his ministers. His political coalition has a large number of seats in the convention. And he could, through his government, have a very strong influence on that final document. And in that scenario, with Bordic as president, if the convention says we need another year, we need more resources, I think Bordic would make the argument to the Chilean people that this is necessary and he would try to push it through Congress. So you're absolutely right to highlight the consequences that this next election will have on the convention. 
And it'll either be an, an incredibly collaborative relationship or an incredibly combative relationship. So it's definitely something to, to watch out for. I think, like you mentioned, it definitely is unprecedented in how the leading candidates are more on the extremist side of, of the spectrum. So we'll be definitely watching closely. And the last thing I want to ask to start wrapping up is for a long time, and as I think you've highlighted, Chile has been a sort of model and somewhat of a democratic exception considering the boarding countries. So I want to ask, based on the most ideal outcome that the Chilean constitutional process could have, what should other countries be looking to learn from what's happening in Chile? And do you think it could lead to some sort of push for similar constitutional processes in, in other countries in Latin America? You are right. Chile has been held out as a model by a lot of international organizations, the OECD, the U.S. government, for its combination of stellar economic growth and strong democratic constitutions and the recomposition of society following a dictatorship without resulting in excessive political violence or a reversion to dictatorship. The historical record of Chile won't change, but the current state of the country is not as good as it used to be. Now, what's sad is that its neighbors aren't in, in, in great shape either. Argentina has deteriorated economically. Brazil faces a public security crisis. As Bolsonaro, an incredibly polarizing figure as president, Brazil is extremely poor. Bolivia went through a coup and a counter coup in elections. Morales was kicked out. He's gone back. Peru has elected a, a non-establishment left-wing president who many people are having a hard time being able to predict where exactly he will go with the country. Ecuador right now has also declared a state of emergency and has sent its military to the streets. Venezuela, well, everyone, everyone knows about the tragedy of Venezuela in its economic collapse and its descent into the Maduro dictatorship. So Chile is not the model that it used to be, but the whole world is, is going through tough times. In terms of the, the constitution itself and this whole process, Chile is late to the game in a certain sense. A number of its neighbors went through constitutional processes in the last decades. Colombia in the, in the early 90s drafted a new constitution. Chavez in Venezuela drafted a new constitution. Maduro as well invoked a, a constitutional assembly. Bolivia wrote a new constitution. Ecuador wrote a new constitution. So in that sense, a lot of the other countries went through this already. And now Chile is catching up to them, you could say. And I know people here are looking to these other countries to inspire the constitution that Chile will write. But Interestingly, its neighbor to the north, Peru, has also talked about starting a, a constitutional process. The President Castillo announced his support for a constitutional assembly. And the relationship between Chile and, and Peru is interesting. I would say without any intention to offend Peruvians, but Peru is sort of the, the younger brother of Chile in, in a certain sense. There's a historic rivalry there where Chile conquered a number of cities and uh, took over parts of southern Peru that are now northern Chile, such as Arica. 
But since then, the countries have developed good relations. There are a large number of Peruvians who live in Chile who have made a good life for themselves here. And now you've seen a large number of Chilean businesses that invest in Peru because whereas Chile's economy has stagnated in the last 10 years or at least seen decreasing returns on economic growth, the Peruvian economy has grown at a large rate. And it depends to a large extent on the same sectors that Chile does, namely mining. So there are similarities there. Peru is still poorer than Chile, but it is adopting in a certain sense some of the same characteristics that allowed Chile to progress over, over the last couple of decades. So I absolutely imagine that Peruvians will be looking at what their neighbors to the south will be up to with this new constitution. And if the Peruvians end up adopting one, I think they would have the most to learn from Chile. Well, that was all super insightful. Thank you so much for your time, Lola. It was great to have you on the podcast. Thank you for the invite, Fernanda. The Global Review.